Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to visit our favorite topic, Christian Zionism. And the question today is, how does one effectively expose the Schofield myth to Baptists, Pentecostals, Hagiites, and is there a different approach needed for mainline Protestants and Catholics to expose them to the deception that has been promoted by Schofield through his reference Bible? And we'll start off, actually, we letters, and this is a response from, I guess, somebody's on our list, and it's about a gentleman who has actually done a little bit of effort to expose Christian Zionism, but in his effort to do it, he didn't get the facts quite straight on Schofield. So our concern, of course, is if you don't get the facts correct, then it's a question of people then not believing you at all. So it's very important to get the facts. And so I'm going to have Leslie read this little piece here, and then we'll discuss it, and Chuck can give some insight on this from this gentleman. His name is William Newton. The Schofield Reference Bible Scam Turns Christians into Zionists. Cyrus Schofield is a small-time politician and career criminal. In 1873, he is forced to resign his position as a district attorney because of crooked financial transactions that include accepting bribes, stealing political contributions, and securing banknotes by forging signatures. Schofield then serves jail time for forgery charges. A heavy drinker, Schofield later abandons his wife and two daughters. His wife finally divorces the drunken crook in 1883. As so many con men do, Schofield will then claim to have found Jesus. He is ordained as a minister and then claims to have a Doctor of Divinity degree, but this degree is never verified. After several mysterious trips to Europe and New York, Schofield publishes the notated reference Bible that bears his name. The added side notes in Schofield's Bible inject a very weird end times prophecy into Christianity. Because of Schofield's altered Bible, many Christians today believe that Jesus will return to save his followers from the end times the rapture, after Israel is established and that, quote, God will bless those who bless Israel, unquote. This biblical alteration at the hands of a known criminal marks the beginning of a powerful force in American politics known as Christian Zionism. Many millions of evangelical Christians have been mentally infected with Schofield's poison. Christian Zionists are even more fanatical in their support of Israel than the Jewish Zionists are. 
The Schofield Bible is very good for Zionism. The question is, who did the con man Schofield meet with while in New York and Europe? Okay, thank you. Uh, on the surface, that seems pretty interesting. Chuck, I think your work has actually uncovered some of the errors here, and you've relied heavily on two books. Why don't you tell us about this, please? Well, okay. First of all, this guy has a lot of things straight here, and he has a few things that are offline and are pretty obviously wrong, and he doesn't quite understand. And so then this paper becomes a sort of a, a problem paper where it's more likely to turn people off than it is to turn them on, especially if they go to the trouble to read just a little bit, do any kind of a web search on Schofield. They'll find all kinds of wonderful nice things said about him. For instance, a small error, but the one that is, is important, he was not a career criminal because he was never he was never convicted of a crime. There's no record of him being convicted of a crime. There's all kinds of smoking guns and reason to see that he was a clever, shady operator, but not a criminal. So th these kind of things you can't really, you, you need to not do when you're trying to uh, use Schofield as a case. Maybe you could read the answer I wrote back, Leslie, and then we could discuss it further. After. I am for what you are writing. Mike, I am all for what you are writing. It is strong in its conclusions, but reasonably uh, supportable, with one exception that I will explain. Keep up the good work. Keep in mind, my guess, is that 75% of all those who go both to church and support war in Iran would think Schofield to be a saint. So your exposure of him is going to the root of the support of Israel's pending war on Iran, which the USA will fight. Now, for the exception. I doubt if Schofield was a drunk because that is the only sin he ever confessed to. He either lied about or ignored the rest. Every converted heathen must have a sin to confess or how can he be converted? This is the religion, Schofield taught, so when it came his time to confess to his mighty peers, booze is what he confessed to, a sin he probably never had. If he was a secret drinker, it was his only sin that never harmed a soul, and which cannot be proven either way, because in his day the police did not arrest you for drunken horseback riding. Schofield cleverly ignored all his real sins, which you named to confess the easy one. As you know, all evangelical believe God rescues and cleanses sinners. I cannot prove or disprove what I write to you, but it fits. Your story will get further with evangelicals if you quietly leave out the drunk part in future stories. Keep on, Chuck. And this Mike actually forwarded the piece by this William Newton. Right. So it is getting spread around the Internet. Uh, this happened to be on Facebook. And so right, you know, yes. people do read these things. And, and I think it's a very good case in point for us to talk about, about how you deal with 
first of all, Judeo-Christians is what we call Christian Zionists before the term Christian Zionism became popular. We call them Judeo-Christians because they mixed Israel into their Christianity. And it uh, took on this political aspect of the politics of Israel being part of their religion. So how do you talk to Christian Zionists about Schofield if you're going to explain to them they're being misled by the footnotes of the Schofield Bible, then you need to be able to properly characterize uh, Schofield. And uh, this man actually does that in a way. He talks about the people he associated with, his mysterious trips to Europe. He talks about uh, the footnotes and writing uh, the end times theology into into the, the regular Bible. And so it's important to realize that Schofield is, is a hero to probably 75% of all of the people who both go to church and favored the war in Iraq or the people who go to church and favor today the, uh, the coming war against Iran. If you could talk to those people, 75% of them would know who Schofield was and would uh, be familiar with uh, his teachings and probably would know about this and would consider themselves Judeo-Christians. On the other hand, if you were talking to Roman Catholics and you mentioned Cyrus High Schofield, they would wonder if that was a baseball player on the Yankees or the Red Sox or who, but they wouldn't even identify with his book at all. Same is true of most Lutherans and mainline Christians. They don't know about the Schofield Reference Bible. There will be one or two around the church that people drag in, but it never gets any credence from the pulpit in, in most of these churches. So this guy Schofield is terribly important, and we, we need to know how to deal with that 75% who actually think he's a wonderful character. This uh, letter is not going to accomplish that, unfortunately. If someone didn't like Schofield, that didn't like dispensationalism, didn't like the Christian Zionist movement, then they would cheer on at what this guy says without really knowing whether the facts are true or not. What are the facts about Schofield? What do we really know about him? These two great books have been written in which these men saw the need to do this, and Kent, Joseph Canfield, who wrote the incredible Schofield in his book, spent years in research before he published it, and it was the only, the first, real, credible effort to research Schofield's real life out. Everything else was written after he became rich and famous and published this Bible, and the Bible was being sold in huge volume in the United States through uh, Oxford University Press. And in 1920, eight years or seven years after the Christian Zionist Bible had been published, a man named Turnbull wrote another book that was also published by Oxford University Press, which was a loving biography of Schofield, which allowed people to make a saint out of him. It managed to do away with his entire first part of his life, which was, of course, the seamy part. He, uh, he, he was perfectly straight-laced after he became rich and famous, as best we know. So we need to actually be able to see what kind of a character he was. I'll pause just a second see if anybody wants to interject. Chuck, I wouldn't necessarily challenge you, but the notion that a lot of people know about Schofield is true, but I think the younger generation don't because the Schofield Reference Bible has been replaced by other reference Bibles like the MacArthur Reference Bible, 
which do similar things to what the school feels. And I've heard Sunday school teachers that are theologians that have talked about their Schofield Reference Bible. And so, yeah, uh, they're, they're older. I don't know if the young generation uh, in the evangelical churches are using the Schofield Reference Bible. I'm not sure on that point. But I think the effect of, of what Schofield did is long-lasting, even if his Bible is not being used uh, in the pews and so forth. Leslie? To counter Zionism, you'd have to really start theologically. And that's how Schofield got started, was uh, perpetuating the Schofield Bibles at every seminary as possible. They were given on a broad scale across the country to all the seminaries. And that's how it got perpetuated, and it's like a snowballing. And it perpetuates itself and perpetuates itself, and you have people who would think Schofield could do no wrong. So what we're doing is putting a dent in their armor, and but they need to think twice. And so theologically is where we need to start. They need to have a reason theologically for countering the uh, notes of Schofield. That's exactly right, Leslie. And that is the angle that we have pretty much taken in our Tragedy and Turning, Part 1, the uh, Christian Zionism, the Tragedy and Turning. We left out all of the harsh criticisms of Schofield, which we, even those we knew were absolutely true, because we just didn't want to cloud the issue. We wanted to talk about what the footnotes actually did and what they said and the effect they had on the world today. And that was why we were careful about picking on Schofield. We did not say very much at all about his history. Nevertheless, the book is still a big seller. And there is a, and I don't know if it's the best selling of the, of the study Bibles or not. It may be, even though books like MacArthur and NIV Study Bible are almost equally dispensational. They do not reach the extent that uh, the Schofield Reference Bible does. They, they are all, there are areas where Schofield goes way beyond these other study Bibles. And that's found especially in the New Testament, where the words of Jesus are openly challenged in the Schofield Bible in several places. You can almost tell that the Schofield Reference Bible was not written by somebody who believed in Jesus because in places it almost directly contradicts words that were directly attributed to Jesus. Oh, he didn't really mean that. Uh, or this could not have been of what he meant. So the book today is still important, and I think you would still find it in seminaries pretty broadly distributed. One older man now, he was at Southwest Theological Seminary, is where he graduated, and he told me that when he was there, which was 20 or more years ago, you were required to own a Schofield Reference Bible in order to be in the seminary. There was so much discussion of what it was all about that you were required to actually own one. So the book's very important. It's also necessary to realize that someone has made this point better than me, that it's a wonderfully composed and written book technically. From an editing standpoint, it's almost flawless. It's mistake-free. And the references run, and uh, the pages 
that jive from issue to issue, even though there are many editions. The page numbers are always the same, and things are always found the same place. And they were made beautifully, too, in great, beautiful leather-bound editions. So the, the Schofield Bible was important. And that brings us to the character of Schofield that I see as I read the works of Canfield and uh, later the works of David Lutzweiler, both of which are big books, very, very substantial books with massive research. I see the picture here of, of Schofield having a brilliant mind, an extraordinary mind. You can just see it in some of the things that he's written, that he was, was a, really, a really brilliant guy, even though he had probably only an eighth grade education. Schofield was accused of forgery. At the time he was accused of forgery, he was actually hard up for money, but he was, he, he was a self-made lawyer in St. Louis, Missouri in the 1870s. And he'd never spent a day in high school or a day in college, as far as anyone knows. He did it all on his own. He was capable of doing that kind of work. And uh, what happened to him, the reason he didn't go to prison wasn't because he didn't forge documents. It was that he was so clever in manipulating the laws of that time that he interjected his sister into the chain of the forgery so that her name occurred in the middle of an endorsement, a series of endorsements. And when the court got down to checking on whether her name, whether she was actually a party to the document, she simply said that she didn't know and couldn't remember and wouldn't state whether or not she was or not. And that dead-ended the court, and when they got to Schofield, they couldn't prove that Schofield had forged the endorsement of the original party and clipped someone. The amount of money was only $300 at that time, about $360, including costs. So, again, Schofield was dumb like a fox. He was smart like Bernard Madoff was smart. He was able to pull off something where he actually forged in front of everyone, but he got away with it. All that happened to him was he was held overnight in jail for a few days. So some people come along and they say that Schofield was imprisoned for the crime of forgery. You know, he was never convicted of the crime of forgery, as I read these documents. But he was incredibly brilliant, in, even in dealing with the Confederate Army, getting himself out of the Confederate Army when he had enlisted. His letter to the Confederate Army is, is beautiful. It's so clear and concise, and, and here he was only 16 or 17 years old at the time and had no education at all. So Schofield was no fool, and the reason that he got this incredibly important job of editing this Bible was that he was a smart guy, and he also knew how to manipulate things, and he knew how to hide things and keep secrets. He managed to completely obliterate his entire history so that his first 30 years are gone. No one has any real record of those things except a few scattered court records and, and other records in various states about him so that he, he actually created a new life for himself, and that was the life of the, of the great Christian. So when they asked him, how did you become a Christian, and what was the turning point in your life, it was time to confess all his sins. 
This is what's expected of Christians when they take a vow that they accept Christ. They're supposed to be prepared to confess their sins. Goldfield lived in an era where he was teaching doctrine that required a confession. So Schofield confessed his sin, that he was, a, he was a terrible drunk. And the problem was that the real researchers who went back into those areas of his life, that, the hidden areas of his life, found out that uh, there was no evidence whatsoever that he ever was ever noted for drinking anything. His own wife, who he abandoned, along with two or three children, and who subsequently divorced him, divorced him for a desertion. She listed all kinds of things about him in her divorce records. There was not a word about alcoholism and, and who would know better than his wife. So alcoholism would, of course, would have been a great reason for getting a divorce along with desertion. So Schofield was incredibly clever. And the book he's produced that we're dealing with is the book of a genius. And the more I, the more I see it, the more I think that he was extremely clever. And that's the kind of person who the Zionists hired to carry out the job that he was doing. We look at uh, the letter from the the piece that's going around on Facebook by Mr. Newton. And he says at the end of it, he talks about the mystery of him going off to Europe and writing this Bible. And this is amazing fact that someone could just disappear from life for four years and then suddenly reappear and have a new Bible in his hands that's ready to be published by the most famous publisher in the world, perhaps Oxford University Press. So we're really dealing with a very clever, capable criminal. In other words, Chuck, he had uh, uh, friends in high places. Well, and Yes, and, and Mr. Newton suggests that, too, in his letter. He says that he correctly noticed that. He said the biblical alterations at the hand of known criminal marks the beginning of a powerful force in American politics known as Christian Zionism. Many millions of evangelical Christians have been mentally infected by Schofield's poison. Christian Zionists are more fanatical in support of Israel than Jewish Zionists are. The Schofield Bible is very good for Zionism. The question is, who did the con man Schofield meet while in New York and Europe? See more. Well, if you really look at the works of Canfield and, and these people, they don't answer that question because they weren't there. And those records are even more cleverly hidden than the ones that they turned over. Obviously, Schofield had significant, he had all the financial support he needed when he went back to Europe for four years to write this Bible. And when he came back, he had a new past, no history at all of what he did in Europe or how he got paid. It was all completely hidden. Had he been in the U.S., there might have been bank records or something, but it was all carefully hidden away. Who he met with there, he wouldn't tell. He never told his friends. He got back, he didn't talk. He became a Christian icon claiming that the great sin that God had forgiven him of was alcoholism. How convenient. Now, should we talk about there was a connection with Samuel Untermeyer, famous Zionist lawyer, through the Lotus Club, a very exclusive club in New York. And that's maybe where they're alluding to the connection to the Zionist movement. Yes, and both Canfield and... Litzwaller, 
uncovered, that's why I found more, Canfield got it started, we found more and more of connections between Schofield in that era before he wrote the Bible, which was 1909 when it was published. But in those first years of the 19th century, there were connections between Schofield and prominent Zionists, undeniable connections that really have been exposed. But the reason Schofield was used, no doubt, picked for this kind of job, is that he demonstrated his ability to uh, manipulate, manipulate the law, keep his mouth shut, never blabber, probably never took a drink. He was probably too smart and careful to ever get drunk. <laughs> he was too good at hiding things. So, yes, Schofield had these connections, and I think our listeners should read the book by Joseph Canfield, Incredible Schofield in his book, or the one by David Litzweiler called C.I. Schofield, Enigmatic Life and Air, both excellent books. But it's almost more important that they watch our own video to start, which is uh, Tragedy and Turning. And I think even better, perhaps, uh, Tom, would you agree, The Roots of Christian Zionism, which goes more into Schofield's background. Yes, either one of those are available on the website, uh, and there's no charge for watching those videos. The way we should wrap this up is with a little discussion about how you talk to people who you think are Judeo-Christians. They come out of the Pentecostal church or the, or the Southern Baptist church. You know where they go to church. You know uh, about their Bible history. You don't know what exactly what they think. You have those hints about what they're exposed to. And, of course, we refer to these people as Judeo-Christians, those leaning toward Christian Zionism because of what they're taught every day. How would we caution them about reading the Schofield Reference Bible? 99% true and 1% arsenic, but the arsenic can kill you. Okay. Those notes can uh, lead you astray. Okay. Well, we've seen this so many times, and we'd also recommend a recent podcast, Dialogue with a Christian Zionist, which will give people a, a very good insight into the thinking. This is actually a dialogue between exchange of emails between Chuck Carlson and the gentleman who responded to one of our vigils. And so there's a lot of resources we have where we hold these truths that for people that are interested can dig into these things. We've pointed out so many times the Christian Zionists in many cases turn their backs on Jesus, what he taught. And to the point that when you talk about Israel with them, it almost takes a place higher than Jesus. Now, they won't admit that, but they act like it's a case that if you don't believe that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, then somehow you're not going to be saved and welcome into Jesus' kingdom. And we know that's not true because that's not in the Bible. Nowhere does Jesus say that you must worship a physical state. He repeated that his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. And so we've found over the years we've talked about this is that you have to take the discussion back to Jesus. What would Jesus do and say and what he taught us? And not Schofield. Very good. And, right. of course, a couple of examples from Schofield's book are helpful. 
and we cover uh, the most often used one, which is, has to do with the land of Israel, and we cover that in both of our uh, videos, and those are places to go. Now, the other case is the person who is a sort of nominal churchgoer at the uh, Catholic Church, or who's a regular seven-day-a-week uh, attendee, let's say, to Catholic Church, a dedicated Catholic, or uh, someone who uh, uh, goes to a mainline church, such as the uh, Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, uh, the Methodist Church. These people would not know Schofield at all. So what would be the approach to them if you found them quoting something that came out of Schofield? In other words, if they told you Israel, Israel's entitled to the well, well, I think Israel's entitled to the land of Palestine. What would, how would you approach that? Well, I would approach it from the standpoint in the New Testament, God got out of the real estate business, and it's pretty well explained in books like we've talked about this, Galatians by Paul, and elsewhere that the kingdom is open to all. So we're not limited to a specific group. There's another factor which you usually find, you can find this out in a big hurry, by asking the person if they believe that Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And Judeo-Christians will almost automatically say, yes, it's almost 100%. But mainline churches, probably 75% would say no, or 50% would say no, and 25% would say they didn't, didn't know. And then you'd have 25% who have actually absorbed the Christian Zionist teaching that Israel is entitled to the land of Palestine. So asking that question gives you a pretty good clue. But generally, with people in mainline churches, if you're moderate and reasonable and, and don't uh, get carried away, you can actually talk to them about political facts of the occupation of Palestine. And they will actually talk about, about practical political matters and the absence of news on that in the United States. It's an entirely different way of uh, talking to people who are not indoctrinated with the Judeo-Christian fever. And obviously the most difficult people are the ones who are. Chuck, I had a question for you, because as I talk to evangelical, they really don't give a rip about who Cyrus Schofield was, what he did, what anything else. It's hyper-literalism of the scriptures. And to me, that's kind of the, the issue that has to be dealt with. Because, you know, they don't care where the idea came from. Well, the Bible said it, and that's, I, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. Craig, that's sure true. It comes down to the way you talk to these people. You really can't argue with them, carrying Scripture with them. Because right. they've already been taught in that game, and they have it right. memorized, and it's rope to them. So when you quote something, they'll quote something. Right. Uh, or, or if they're not smart enough, to, a lot of them haven't learned enough to do that but they just basically turn you off. And so dealing with Judeo-Christians, one thing that I've never found worked for me was to try to parry scripture with them. I think you can deal more successfully with them, showing the roots of what they have done. It's kind of like, why do you believe what you believe? Where did it come from? Where did that thought right. come from? Yeah, yeah right. Why do, you, why do you believe that? You have to ask them questions. And then ask them simple biblical principles rather than quoting scripture. How do you feel about us and the peacemakers? 
Do you think that doesn't belong in the Bible, or what do you think Jesus meant by that? And then, and then just hang on. Or if, if it comes to something like debating over an issue like who owns the land, if they get into Galatians, which they will, you basically, they, then you just stay there. And you, you simply insist, no, you haven't, you haven't answered the question. That, that you, you're recording an excuse for what you think, but you haven't answered the question of how does those Schofield interpretations make sense. Mm-hmm. That's good. Uh, also, you, you mentioned that uh, the book by Canfield, and while, uh, while you were talking, I just did a search, and that's available online as a PDF. Well, it's, it's a huge problem, but we are seeing more exposés and knowledge of what Christian Zionism is. So we're, we're seeing this from a variety of sources, and that helps to put some light on the subject and the actions. For example, here just recently, Christians United for Israel, headed by John Hagee, has been urging people to ask Congress to put more sanctions on Iran when our government is trying to work with them through negotiations. So they've got a dead set that the only solution is to be tough. And that really goes against what Jesus taught us. Tom, in, in wrapping this up, can you give our listeners one Bible passage in the New Testament that they could go to or one book that you think puts across this idea of the new covenant being now? Well, certainly, uh, Galatians chapter 3 is very clear. Let's just uh, read a few things in Galatians. It seems pretty obvious to me, but it is unfortunately, a lot of times what we see with Christian Zionists is that they want to keep going back to the Old Testament, but in Chapter 3, we'll read uh, verse 15 right here. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Jesus Christ. So that pretty well defines who that seed was. It's Jesus Christ, that lineage from Abraham provided that. And then just a few verses down here in chapter 3, verse 27 through 29, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so Jesus said this was a spiritual kingdom, and that seems pretty clear to me, but some people can't see it that way. The seeds of war are in the Schofield's notes. Well, that's right, because it guarantees this land grant to the modern state of Israel because there wasn't a state of Israel when Schofield wrote the book, but it had been edited a couple times after that. 
And so that's all explained when you look at the, the videos that we've talked about here. Well, I just want to add, I think a lot of people are tired of war. They'd like to see peace in the making. Jesus is the, the Prince of Peace, and we should stick to Jesus. Let him stick to us. Right. Amen. Thank you so much. And that's our report for tonight. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.